When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Wednesday. Today's show jam-packed with Boris Johnson's government getting thwacked. The British Prime Minister could be losing his grip with key cabinet members jumping ship and MPs in Parliament today seriously letting rip. The PM vows to fight on, but the question is, for how long? The British pound, the weakest in two years, just one of global investors' current fears. And it was fear of a recession that lay at the core of Tuesday's cross-asset volatility. Take a look at this. For now, U.S. stock futures remain unsettled, but we are tilting to the top side. We're trying to see a bounce early on in pre-market trade today. The S&P 500, though, tumbling 2% at the lows yesterday, only to bounce back later on in the day. The Nasdaq doing a similar thing, staging a strong reversal to close up, as you can see there, 1.7%. The key underperformers were the oil stocks, mirroring the sell-off across the energy complex yesterday. Both Brent and US crude fell some 10% on Tuesday to below $100 a barrel. They're recapturing a touch of those losses today, as you can see. What began as a fear of supply shortages in Europe tied to strikes in Norwegian oil fields actually was drowned out by worries over slowing growth. Copper, this is a classic economic bellwether. That tumbled more than 4% Tuesday to a 19-month low. That's sending you a, a key signal very much tied to all of this in the commodity space. The US dollar continues to strengthen in a classic flight to safety trade. We're giving back a little bit today, hitting a 20-year high, though, yesterday against the euro with euro-dollar parity. So that's one for one, very close in sight. What's far harder to see, though, in the shorter term is the future of the British government. And that is where we begin today's show. Boris Johnson fighting for survival yet again, a defiant British prime minister vowing to stay in office after a wave of resignations from his government, including two of his most senior colleagues. Frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. And that's what I'm going to do. Anyone quitting now after defending all that hasn't got a shred of integrity. Mr Speaker, isn't this the first recorded case of the sinking ships fleeing the rat? Max Foster joins us on this. It was a punchy Prime Minister's questions yet again, Max, with uh, Boris. Prime Minister Boris Johnson showing clear bravado, but these were two of his most competent, I'd call not only senior ministers that left. Um, How long can he remain? Well, he isn't resigning. He made that pretty clear in those sound bites that you were just playing. An unbelievably defiant performance, as you were saying. He's not going anywhere. So therefore, you have to look at the mechanism for, you know, the, the party to get rid of him. And that's pretty complicated. You remember recently there was a confidence vote. He won that confidence vote under the current rules. There can't be another one for a year. Uh, so now all those backbench MPs who probably, you know, took that vote sooner rather than uh, than they should have done, if you're a rebel at least, 
they're trying to look into the mechanics of changing the system so there can be another confidence vote. There are more votes within the party around that, so I think they're going to be the developments you're going to see. But ultimately, he can just squat effectively in Downing Street, even if the rest of the cabinet resigns, uh, as long as he wants to. I think we're at over 20 resignations in the last uh, 24 hours. And um, I think, you know, in our experience of covering politics, we can pretty much say that no other Tory leader would probably be in power at this point, but we're talking about a very different Tory leader, aren't we? Do you think he understands the gravity of the situation, Max, to your point about squatting? There doesn't necessarily even need to be more resignations if the mood of the party is against him, unless the 1922 committee, as you quite rightly pointed out there, decide, look, we're going to change the rules and we're going to try and oust him sooner than that. Um, he can remain in place. He does um, seem to believe, if you look at what he says, in what he's doing. And his supporters, even now, will say there are more important matters at stake here. There's a war in Europe. There's also a cost of living crisis. So those are the priorities. And he wants to steam ahead and see those policies put into place. And actually, uh, because he's such a great PR, he's trying to turn this around into a situation where you know, the previous Chancellor didn't want to reduce taxes because he wanted to pay off debt. Uh, Boris Johnson now, having got rid of him, uh, is able to reduce taxes, which is something the backbenchers want. This is something that he was telling backbenchers last night. Uh, you can never write him off. He may be able to convince them that he is the best person to lead. And we are in this situation, aren't we? Uh, that we don't know who would replace him, who's a credible leader, not just a leader of the party, but someone who can win elections. We've still got that big gap there, and we don't have any other names because they haven't put themselves forward yet, apart from Jeremy Hunt, and it's pretty clear the party won't back him. Yes, the most likely candidates remain uh, by his side, I think, and that's part of um, what's difficult to decipher here. Um, Max, great to have you with us. We shall see. What happens when we're talking about this more in the show, too? Thank you for your time now. Now, another day of ups and downs in financial markets around the world. The main catalyst, recession fears. Those fears dragged crude oil prices below $100 a barrel Tuesday for the first time since early May. Traders concerned a slowdown will crimp demand for oil. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, what's fascinating is the early catalyst for the sell-off yesterday was supply fears, as you and I were talking about, these strikes in some of the Norwegian oil fields. And it sort of became a, a broader catalyst for spiking prices, means less demand, means higher recessionary risk, are central banks going to overstep, over-tighten? It sort of cut to the core of all the challenges and questions, I think, that consumers and investors are asking at this moment. Yeah, I think the sort of push-pull, perhaps you could even say pull-pull in the situation yes. of uh, supply-demand that's going on uh, in the oil market at the moment that makes it immensely difficult to predict, Julia, what, what is going to come next. You know, I think a, a lot of analysts, including the International Energy Agency, actually think that supply issues are the most salient here, that, that because supply is likely to tighten as the EU oil embargo comes in, uh, that will offset uh, the, the, the worries over slower demand, depending, of course, on how bad recessions are if they do hit uh, in some of the developed economies. So that's that's sort of part of it. I think the Norwegian situation, uh, you know, the government stepped in to resolve this. They say they don't usually do things like that, but it was an emergency. They, they were warning of imminent shortages uh, of gas in Europe. I think that revealed the fragility of the situation, really sort of exemplifying the various forces at play in this economy, and in particular, inflation. Obviously, the energy industry benefiting 
from inflation raking in record profits, but clearly not immune from what we're seeing across a variety of industries. And that is worker unrest, as you see inflation rates going up uh, and, and wages not keeping pace. So, so much fragility out there. Uh, and Europe, of course, really uh, sort of in the middle of all this, if you lose your plan A when it comes to energy, which is Russia, then what happens if your plan B, somewhere like Norway, is under threat as well? I think that really brought things home yesterday. Yes, security paramount. And, and to look at the bigger picture, suddenly bonds, traditionally the safe haven, became the safe haven yesterday. Bonds were being bought, that brought interest rates down. A classic measure of inflationary concerns in, in markets, something called break-evens, and even they started to come down, which suggests growth slowdown. That tempers inflation of its own volition. And suddenly equities turned around because you'd got that, to your point, again, the push-me-pull-you of buy bonds, fine, rates are coming down, uh, and then we perhaps can dip into stocks again. You know, yeah, I think every day brings a different view of what exactly a safe haven is in this in this uh, economy, Julia. And meanwhile, you know, we've got this extraordinary situation here in Europe where uh, the euro is practically at parity with the dollar because, of course, you're also working with something of a disparity around the world with how economies are doing. I think what that shows is Europe is doing a little bit worse. It's more under threat from the war in Ukraine uh, and inflation. And you're also talking about disparity between what central banks are doing as well. Well, because, of course, in the U.S., the Fed has acted quite aggressively recently. We've had three interest rate rises this year in increasing increments, whereas the ECB has yet to act at all. And even if it does hike rates aggressively this month, that will only get it to zero. So that's what's causing these moves uh, in exchange rates. And I think that's also sort of upsetting the balance in terms of, of where people think is the right place to put their money at this point, especially amid all of these recession fears. It's such a great point. It's, is it a measure of dollar strength or of euro weakness? I tell you what, on a day when you have further calamities in the UK government and the exchange rate between the euro and the pound doesn't budge because the euro is already so beaten up it can't strengthen against the pound, it tells you something very interesting about the fears out there um, beyond the politics for growth too. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you. Claire Sebastian. All right, let's move on. China's COVID recovery curbed again. She in the city of 30 million people facing a seven-day lockdown after officials logged cases of the fast-spreading Omicron subvariant. Residents also in parts of Shanghai and Beijing have been ordered to undergo further tests following new case discoveries there too. It's all raising fears of a broader return to life under lockdown. Will Ripley joins us now. Will, can't help but say it. Uh, here we go again, perhaps. But I need to put this in context, Julia. We're talking about a nation of 1.4 billion people and 380 or so new cases reported yesterday. Uh, so just think about that. 1.4 billion, 380. And yet you and most of those cases, by the way, asymptomatic. And yet you have millions of people who are being affected by these lockdowns. There's two counties with residents, uh, two million people living there. They're locking down. Uh, you mentioned Cheyenne the, with more than 13 million people in a partial lockdown, which means schools are closed again. Gyms, libraries, uh, dine-in suspended for another week. So businesses are going to continue to struggle. And, and the reason why China is doing this is they're very concerned about this new BA5 Omicron subvariant that supposedly uh, can actually infect people who have recently been infected with Omicron. So like, you know, people who might have gotten sick a month or two ago who thought they had antibody protection plus their, you know, tr three shots, 
that might not be the case. And given that China, Julia, has a large uh, elderly population that is, remains unvaccinated, uh, that is one of the reasons, presumably, why Chinese President Xi Jinping is insisting on this zero COVID policy, you know, in, you're talking about out of like 27 million samples, they find 29 positive cases. And yet you have millions of people whose lives are upended. And if they don't have a green QR code on their phone, they can't even run simple errands like going to get their medicine for their elderly loved ones. It's really uh, raising a lot of debate inside China about whether this is actually backed up by science, which the answer is no, or if this is politically motivated because of uh, the Chinese president Xi Jinping's insistence on zero COVID pretty much at any cost. And you know how the economy's been really taking a beating as well. Yes, at huge cost to the economy, as we've been talking about regularly on the show. Um, you reminded me the sheer scale of the population in China of 1.4 billion people. I want to get your take on a, on a story that I read overnight as well. Up to 1 billion people's data available and accessible on the internet. It only came to light, I believe, when an anonymous user in a hacker forum uh, tried to sell the data and it was brought to wider attention. Well, we're talking, what, 70 percent of the, of the Chinese population's data out there for, for anyone 70 percent. Yes, that's right. You know, a huge number of people when you're talking about a billion people in China whose personal information has been compromised. That that hacker, that anonymous user was offering to sell uh, the data of 70 percent of China's population for two hundred thousand dollars or 10 Bitcoin, uh, 23 terabytes of data. Who knows what you could do with that data with people's, uh, you know, identification numbers, with their bank account information. Uh, and this is apparently it's been online uh, by Sh- Shanghai police and unsecured, publicly accessible for more than a year, since at least April of 2021. So in a sense, this hacker who was trying to sell the info also perhaps did a public service uh, by, by raising to light the fact that you have all of these people's personal data essentially on display on the internet, waiting to be discovered, which is, which is shocking in a country like China, Julia, where the authorities certainly can, you know, can go and, and, and access anybody's personal information, but they keep all of, their, uh, all of their investigations and everything on the web pretty, pretty tightly locked. So there's certainly an investigation now into how this could have happened. How could the police have had that much personal information in this massive online database publicly accessible. Yeah, and, and I guess a sense of who may have accessed the data over the, over the past year. And just for our viewers so that they know, of course, um, 10 Bitcoin, around $200,000 for access to data for 70% yeah. of the Incredible. Chinese population. I, think you're I should have bought Bitcoin, it. Julia. Yeah, I really, I, I knew it back when it was And the moral low. of the story it, is, I didn't. <laughs> yes, there's many morals here. Um, Will, great to have you. Thank you. Will Ripley there. Okay, let me bring up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The 21-year-old accused of carrying out a mass shooting during a July 4th parade in Illinois on July 4th will make his first court appearance later today. Robert Cremo faces seven counts of first-degree murder. Officials are still trying to figure out how he was legally able to acquire the gun used in the shooting. Civilians still remaining in Ukraine's Donetsk region are being urged to leave as fighting intensifies. Military officials say about 340,000 civilians are clinging on out of a population of 1.6 million before the war began. Ukrainian Railways says it will operate longer trains to help move people out of the area. And the Secretary General of OPEC has died just a few weeks before he was due to step down from the role. Mohamed Barkindo from Nigeria had been at the head of the oil exporters cartel for six years through tumultuous events, including the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He was 63 years old. 
Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, we return to London and look at the British Prime Minister's political future as pressure continues to mount. Plus, bold moves, big deals, tales from one of the world's largest crypto exchanges coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a whipsaw Wednesday in the U.S., Stocks pre-market futures little changed, as you can see, but it's been a volatile pre-market session already, a continuation of the unsettled market picture that has carried over into the new month and new quarter as investors trying to gauge how slowing growth will impact profits as well as Fed policy and prices. Investors increasingly questioning whether the U.S. central bank can raise rates high enough to truly tame inflation. If economies fall into recession, maybe the economy will do the work for it. Some investors, in fact, now pricing in rate cuts next year. The minutes of the Federal Reserve's latest policy meeting will be released later today and could give us new clues into where central bankers see their tightening campaign headed. Meanwhile, the FTSE higher today, despite growing uncertainty over the future of Boris Johnson's Conservative government. UK stocks perhaps getting a boost from a weakening British pound too at fresh two-year lows against the US dollar. That, of course, makes UK exports cheaper abroad. For the year, the FTSE is down a mere 3%. Compare and contrast that with the S&P 500, which has lost some 20% since January. Okay, let's return to the House of Commons in London and Britain's embattled Prime Minister refusing to step down after a series of resignations from his government, including that of Health Secretary Sajid Javid. Treading the tightrope between loyalty and integrity has become impossible in recent months. And Mr Speaker, I will never risk losing my integrity. I also believe a team is as good as its team captain and that a captain is as good as his or her team. So loyalty must go both ways. The events of recent months have made it increasingly difficult to be in that team. Joining us now, Conservative MP Peter Bone. So great to have you on the show. You remain in the Prime Minister's team. You're continuing to back him, sir. Why? Well, good morning. Yes, I, I am... I think the majority of Conservative MPs are supporting him because he's, he's got all the big issues right, if you like. You know, we got Brexit done. He got the first vaccination in Western Europe. It's, it's gone to billions of people across the world. We've now got the lowest unemployment for 50 years. I mean, lowest unemployment for 50 years is amazing. Um, Boris is uh, dealing with the illegal migration from Europe. It's trying to stop that. And he's led Europe's response to the terrible, terrible war in Ukraine. And today, at this, this very day, we've got the biggest tax cut uh, for decades. So all those things seem to me are, are, are pretty important and popular with the voters. So um, and that's why we, I support him. We can debate the, the relative success or, or failure of policy, which I, I agree with you is actually vitally important at this moment and actually what we should be talking about. But I want to get back to what the uh, former health secretary said there, which was about this choice between loyalty and integrity and that he simply didn't feel like there was integrity. D- d- can we question that in light of the, the prime minister's behaviour, of the behaviour of some of the other members of this government too, perhaps? Well, I, I don't... E- I don't agree with the former health secretary on this. He's resigned. It's not the first time he's resigned um, from a government. Um, And we've got a very good new health secretary and we've got a very good new chancellor. So, uh, I I mean, if if it's like a soccer match, you know, it's that a lot of people can't 
tackle the ball because if you like, like those are policies and, and, and they can't touch those because they're good policies. So they're actually tackling the player and I, I, I don't think that's the way forward at all. Let's if, by all means discuss policies but not, not individuals. I, d- I do like your analogy there because I do think some could look at the Prime Minister's behaviour and say he's scored several own goals, particularly over the past several months. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I, I wouldn't agree with you, but I certainly agree that uh, some of the things, the, the operation inside number 10, the, the way the, the media outlet works and that sort of thing, have not been up to scratch. And of course, the Prime Minister has changed many of those people. Uh, so hopefully that will improve. Uh, the trouble is, I, I, I find it slightly difficult talking to you about soccer when I actually I head up the all parliamentary group in the in the parliament for American football so I probably should have ah. used American football terms. <laughs> we'll do that next time sir. Um, let's talk about the 1922 committee because there are those that are suggesting now that behind the scenes there is work being done to perhaps change the rules to oust the prime minister. Do you think he still has the confidence of the majority of those required to oust him even if those rules can be changed? Well, I do think he has the uh, support of the majority. There's some misconception about what the 1922 committee is. Actually, the 1922 committee is all members of the Conservative Party in Parliament who are not uh, part of the government. So it's, it's not a sort of small committee, it's a huge body of people. And uh, I, Sir Graham Brady, who chairs the committee, uh, has said that we won't, won't change the rules because the rules are there for a reason. You can't have a ballot every every uh, third Wednesday on whether you want to change the party leader. Once you've had the ballot, you can't be changed again for a year. So I think all that is, um, well, what we'd call here Westminster bubble talk. Is the Prime Minister a liability, sir? Well, you see, that's a very good question because if you were in in the corridors of power, you might think that is the case. But if you come to my constituency in Wellingborough, which is in the Midlands, I was out campaigning on Saturday. I was in the Hatton part of my constituency, the Rushton part and the Urchester part. Um, people were coming up to me saying how well the Prime Minister is doing and, and get on delivering what they want. Not a single one of them came up uh, and mentioned the, the Prime Minister and they wanted to get rid of him. So I think there's a difference with what's being discussed down here and what people in the country are actually thinking. What about the parts of the country, though, that are turning away from the Conservatives and actually looking at, at Labour as, a, as an alternative option now because actually they've lost confidence in the government? I mean, your constituency is one thing, but what about the broader country? Do they still have faith in this leader? Well, I think so. We had two by-elections recently, two parliamentary by-elections, which uh, one was won by the Liberals and one was won by Labour. But if you add the votes together of both those by-elections, the Conservatives actually got more votes than Labour and more votes than Liberal Democrat. So if that was actually a general election where all the constituencies up, you would expect us to win. And the opinion polls say we're 3-4% behind in the polls. Mid-term in the United Kingdom, that's a very good position to be in if you're the government. I mean, David Cameron, the previous Prime Minister, was 20 points behind mid-term and still went on to win a general election. So I think from that point of view, things look good for the Conservative Party. Two very senior resignations, as you discussed, the the former Chancellor and the former Health Secretary. Do you see that as strategic and that they are um, perhaps making a move against the Prime Minister for their own interests rather than in the interests of the country? 
Well, they're certainly moving, making a move against the Prime Minister, there's no question about that. It does appear that they may well have been coordinated. I actually think we finish up with a better Chancellor and a better Health Secretary by what's happened. So it might be to the benefit of the country. We had a Chancellor before who was putting taxes up. We've got a new Chancellor who believes in cutting taxes. and well, That's what I believe in too. And I know the Health Secretary will do an excellent job of running this massive National Health Service that we have in the United Kingdom. Peter, is there anything very quickly that this Prime Minister could do to lose your loyalty? Well, the, I'm a parliamentarian. Mm. Now, if the Prime Minister has knowingly lied to Parliament at any stage, then he has to resign. All ministers have to resign if they do that. There's a committee called the uh, Privileges Committee that are looking into that at the moment. Uh, I don't think he has lied to Parliament deliberately, but if they find he has, then he would have to resign. And you'll call for that at that moment? Oh, I, I, well, it would be like night follows day if, he, if that was the case. Yeah. Peter, great to chat to you. We'll reconvene on the uh, American football Thanks. chat. <laughs> great to Yeah, let's you. do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Bone, Conservative MP, sir. Thank you. OK, coming up, crypto crash or just a bump in the road? I speak to the CEO of FTX about the industry's future and more. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and it's an unsettled market picture that's prevailing. The major averages, little change, but tilted to the top side. The Dow trying to break a two-session losing streak. Key market tests are coming here in the United States. And for US investors, including Friday's US jobs report, a big question is whether US employment can remain a pillar of strength if companies pull back on hiring plans as higher prices bite and Americans sour on their economic prospects. Friday's report is expected to show gains of less than 300,000 new jobs. That would represent the slowest pace of job creation in over a year. But hey, that would still be positive. OK, Bitcoin today holding steady and still above testing that key 20,000 level per Bitcoin. My next guest, CEO of crypto exchange FDX, is managing to navigate the crypto turmoil and offer a lifeline to players who are struggling. Founded in 2019, FDX is one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, allowing users to invest and trade in cryptocurrencies and derivatives. But FDX is also going far beyond Bitcoin. They've invested in a stock clearing company and ventured into the payments world with products like FTX Pay. It's a widget that allows you to accept crypto and fiat payments. And the FTX card, a debit card that's connected to an FTX account and is accepted anywhere that Visa cards are. And unlike some of their closest competitors, FTX says it's profitable, giving them a muscle to ride to the rescue of other crypto players. Sam Bankman-Fried, CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, joins us now. Oh boy, Sam, you have been incredibly busy at a very volatile and I think challenging time for the broader sector. As painful as it is, is what we're seeing in some way healthy too? I think what we've seen so far might be healthy, you know, to the extent that what it's doing is flushing out some of the leverage that had to get flushed out, flushing out some of the players that just were not capitalized well enough. You know, I think that that could ultimately end up being moderately healthy for markets. Now, at some point, you start to see reasonably well capitalized uh, players have issues. And at that point, I think it stops being healthy and starts being, uh, you know, bad for the ecosystem long term. But I don't think we've reached that point. Are we seeing some of that? Because that sort of goes to the point of some of the investments that you're making. And I'm sure your your doors being knocked on on a daily basis with people saying, hey, do you want to invest and can you give us money? And you then have to try and cherry pick and sort the, the weaker and the unprofitable and perhaps the insolvent ones out from the viable businesses. That's that's tough. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it is. And, and I think that that you kind of hit the nail on the head of like what we're trying to do here, which is it's not sort of bail out every business that we can find. You know, some of them are, are just in a position where they have to go under and that's the right thing to happen. But I think, you know, the, the sort of key types of players that we're looking for to extend credit to are ones who have built a good business, ones who have customers that need protecting, where we're trying to stop contagion from spreading through the ecosystem and where there is a long-term sustainable pathway forward there, um, you know, as long as there is a short to medium term, uh, you know, pathway for liquidity. Okay, so then we have to address some of the recent investments and some of the rumors, because I feel like every time you do an interview or you open your mouth, it's pounced on now by the industry <laughs> as, a, as a potential. So the first one, I think, and I've seen you try and clarify this on, on, on Twitter and the rumors keep spreading, Bitcoin miners, Sam, how interested are you investing <laughs> in Bitcoin miners? Yeah, it's interesting that that's been the one that's gotten play because that was one of the few sectors of crypto where, you know, I basically said, look, we don't particularly have interest um, in that sector, right? It doesn't check some of the major boxes. It's not really a customer protection area. Um, it's not as much of a sort of contagion or systemic risk area, given that anyone can come in to fill the hash rate gap. Um, and, and so, you know, what I say is, look, we're, we're willing to talk to any companies in the industry. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't have sort of a prohibition on it, um, but, but it's not an area that we think is sort of like a high priority area. And it's not an area, you know, for, for, for liquidity. And it's not an area that we're actively looking into. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? By not saying, no, we are not interested, <laughs> you leave open the crack in the door and right. people fly through it really fast. But that's... Exactly. part of the evolution of the role that you're now playing in this market, which is which is fascinating. You've also taken investment in, in Robinhood, another rumor that's popped up. I guess we could make the point that you might never get it cheaper. Um, can we rule it out? <laughs> you know, I don't think you can ever rule anything out. And, um, you know, I, I think that like we there are ways we'd be excited to partner with them. Look, I, I think there are ways in which, you know, we'd be excited to work with them, ways in which our products you know, could be synergistic. Um, and I think it, it's, as you said, you know, might never get it cheaper. You know, I, I think it, it respects, it's it sort of like a, a you know, represents a, an attractive, you know, investment. And, you know, I, I really, really respect the, the uh, you know, the company and brand and, and um, you know, scope that, uh, uh, that, you know, Vlad and the team have, have sort of, you know, built this out to. Um, that being said, there's no sort of active discussions there, um, you know, around, uh, you know, around M&A or anything like that. Um, you know, it's uh, it was primarily more of a, you know, investment and, you know, again, always excited to talk to them about, you know, potential partnership opportunities. I also think with these things, you have to work out what you can build organically yourself. I mean, I saw that you yes. have just bought a stock clearing company, Embedded Financial Technologies, um, FTX Stocks. One yes. perhaps could uh, could call this. So when you're looking at an acquisition, it's how quickly do you want to scale up versus building something yourself? And you sort of have those options. I guess we could throw Coinbase in here as well. Again, another company that you may or may not ever get cheaper. Coinbase? And then right. we'll draw a line under this. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, at the risk of, of starting rumors I don't, I don't intend to start, you know, I think what I would say is, look, I have a similar answer to that, right? Of like, are there potential ways we could work together? Absolutely. Always excited to do that. You know, could it be an attractive investment here? I don't want to give investment advice, but like, you know, it would not shock me if this were a time um, when when this was, you know, a potentially attractive investment given sort of the, the revenue base that they've built up. Um, but, you know, no active, uh, you know, talks, you know, beyond anything like that there. 
And, uh, and, and to your point of filter by, like, you know, by default with most things, you know, our instinct is, look, we're going to build this out, right? We're going to build out what we think is important for our product. Um, and, you know, we're always open to looking for opportunities where, you know, it might make sense for us uh, to, uh, to do an acquisition instead. Um, but that, that, that's sort of on the side. And, and, and you know, that, that's always in some sense, um, you know, not what we have to plan for. We always have to plan for building out everything that we're going to want ourselves. And that makes sense to me. I mean, the business model to me is also interesting just to use Coinbase as an example. I mean, they lost, what, $430 million in the first quarter. Were you in the exchange business profitable throughout this period of volatility? Because I think this is also a period of separating perhaps the good from the OK and the, and the bad is how profitable these companies are. Uh, you, you have said yeah. that you're profitable and have been now for many quarters. Um, did you make money in this period? Yeah, yeah, we, we did. We, we've made money, you know, every quarter for, for a number in a row that that includes the most recent ones. And, you know, I, I think the way that I think about it is um, I, I sort of like always by default want to be running a profitable business. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying there couldn't come a time when strategically it would make sense to make a different decision. But it's it, it's, it's a risky decision to make. It's putting yourself you know, in a position of weakness in a lot of ways. And it's not what by default we want to be doing here. And, and so, you know, we, we, we have been profitable as the answer the whole time and, you know, sort of intend to, 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 to remain profitable um, unless, uh, you know, unless there is a really active opportunity that we find to, um, uh, you know, to, to invest in, in a particular way. But I sort of don't anticipate that because, you know, I think this should be a business model that is profitable at its, at its real core. And uh, I, I think that, you know, it's a high margin business um, and that's how we've been running it. But a big piece of this is when you work, look at the workforce like that is, I think, the key differentiating factor here. Um, and it's an interesting point is, is, is it's not that some businesses are spending, you know, billions a year on marketing and others aren't. There, there are some marketing spend difference, but by far the bigger factor here um, is actually when you look at the uh, at the headcount. Um, you know, we have uh, about 300 employees uh, globally today, and that is a small fraction mm. of the number that uh, that a number of other players have. And I think that that is the key thing that's led to these differences. OK, yeah, I yep. I was going to try and disagree, but I can't. So I'm going to move on. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to admit it. Um, let's talk about the other parts of the business as well, because I've spent a lot of time talking about exchanges and purchases and M&A. But you also have a venture capital part of yeah. the business. You also have this growing, and I mentioned it in the introduction, payments part of the business. How big do you see that going? Because yeah. that, I mean, for me, that's what's so exciting about this sector irrespective of the volatility is how transformative particularly for things like remittances this part of the business and this technology can be talk to me about that and the growth that you're seeing there and the opportunity yeah absolutely and i think it absolutely could be transformative and and i think that would be you know really really exciting to see and you know at its core i think one of the biggest use cases um for crypto is on the payment side because when you look at traditional payments, they're broken in so many ways, right? And, and, and people talk sometimes about the remittance use case, which I do think is a big one. Um, you know, the fact that if you want to send money overseas right now, um, that is a massive hassle. You might be spending 10, 20 percent 
on fees. It might take you a week to get there. And if you're not careful, it might get stolen by some nefarious player somewhere along the way. Um, that That's a massive problem. And it's a problem that you do not want to be facing when you're trying to support family members um, back home. But you know, even outside of the remittance use case here, right? I, I think that that you know, you look at um, uh, you look at even domestic payments in the United States, where you know, frankly, people are spending one two percent on you know every payment um, in order to paper over the fact that the actual payments networks um, are are fundamentally kind of broken. And this isn't even like credit cards gouging profits or anything. Um, this is the, the, this comes sort of like beneath that and, and and really is just at the layer of like actually trying to uh you know use the underlying uh you know ACH and, and and wire transfer systems which are somewhat broken. So I think there's a huge, huge opportunity uh really to revolutionize what payments look like to save huge amounts for consumers, for people doing remittances. And I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I mean, this I, this has the ability to be so transformative. However we do this, whether we work with central banks, commercial banks, governments, the yep. private sector, I think there's there's opportunity for everybody to work together. Um, final quick question, Sam, because I'm, I'm running out of time. Um, the last time we talked, we were talking about philanthropy. And I know you set up working with the Ukrainian government ways to use crypto to raise money for the government. I just wanted to ask you quickly, because obviously they've also changed the rules, concerns about sort of spillover effects and substitution away from their currency. Yep. How much money did you raise? And what do you think about this as you know, a tool for the governments, but also the risks associated with it too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that gets to the point that this can be a great thing for the world. I think it can also be a really messy thing. Um, but I, I, I think that that at its core, you know, we, we've we've seen uh, millions of dollars go through, um, you know, the systems we, we've given, I think something close to a million ourselves as well, uh, to support, uh, you know, humanitarian aid um, and, and growth in Ukraine. And I, you know, I think when you think about what it would take to get, uh, you know, to get funds, both to the, the government there, where we do have a relationship with the Ukrainian government um, for raising capital um, for them using cryptocurrencies um, that, that runs through FTX, um, you know, whether it's getting money to the government or whether it's getting money um, to individuals there in need, um, you know, there are literally tanks outside of the banks. And, 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 and this gets to, I think, one of the, you know, places where it can be really important to have a fully digital banking system um, and, uh, you know, fully digital, uh, you know, way of, of handling payments. And I think that's, you know, uh, an international one that that's the core of what we've been, you know, helping to support in, in Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's a, a healthy conversation to be having away from some of the noise of digital assets and cryptocurrencies yep. themselves that the work goes on beneath. Sam, great to chat to you. Come back soon, please, because um, I have a million more questions for you. But as always, no, not enough time. Great Will to do. chat. Thank you. Sam Bagman-Fried there, the CEO of FTX. OK, after the break, we're live in London as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson continues to fight for his political future. Stay with us. Okay, back to our top story. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson facing his biggest storm yet, a wave of ministers quitting as questions mount over how Johnson responded to allegations of sexual misconduct by a member of his government. Hear what the opposition Labour leader had to say. In the middle of a crisis, doesn't the country deserve better yes. than a Z-list cast of nodding dogs? Yeah. 
Joining us now is Conservative MP Tim Loughton. Tim, great to have you with us. You agree with Keir Starmer. Time for Boris to go. I rarely agree with Keir Starmer, but I've been saying for some months that I'm afraid the Prime Minister's position has become untenable and that he needs to resign, and nothing has changed that over recent months. Indeed, it's gone the other way. So I'm afraid the writing's on the wall, the game is up, and he now needs to stand down. But he's looking like he won't. No, but that's, that is Boris. I mean, you have to take your hat off to him. His irrepressible positivity and bullishness, even when you know everything is going wrong, uh, around him at the moment and ministers are, are leaving the, uh, uh, the government. But I think it's a great shame. I mean, this, is, this is a real tragedy because I think Boris has actually done a lot of good things in his premiership, starting off with sorting out Brexit through the pandemic and his great leadership on, on Ukraine. But we cannot have a prime minister who has lost so much uh, trust and confidence of not only parliamentary colleagues, but the, uh, the British public. Um, because all of these recent incidents, I'm afraid all the roads lead back to number 10. And that's why now we can only bring this to a resolution by having a new leader and a new prime minister. And we need to, cheat to start that leadership contest as soon as possible. Tim, who should that leader be? Uh, well, I'm the worst person to ask. I've been on the uh, leadership campaigns of the losing candidate uh, all the way back to William Hague, so I'm not going to make any predictions. But what I will say is that I could reel off a name, a list of six, seven, eight names of good, credible uh, candidates who will step up to any competition, who would make uh, a good, decent prime minister in a very different way to uh, Boris, with different characteristics, but that doesn't mean there'll be any less, uh, less good. But I just hope the prime minister realises that writing is on the wall now and resigns of his own accord, with his own uh, uh, agenda, and hands over the, uh, the baton as soon as possible. Did one or two of those candidates resign yesterday, potential future leaders? Oh, I'm, I'm sure um, there are potential future leaders amongst those candidates who've already um, resigned. and there are I'm be talking about the follow, former Chancellor the and the former Health Secretary. Uh, but they are both strong candidates, and I wouldn't be surprised to see one or both of them uh, put their names uh, forward at the appropriate time. But that leadership contest hasn't started um, yet because Boris is showing no signs of going of his own accord, which I think will be a great, uh, a great shame. But there'll be others to, uh, to add to that list in coming days, I'm sure. Tim, what's in the best interest of the country and the British people at this moment? Is it to continue to try and form policy or is it to engage in a leadership contest, a battle, a potential election, who knows, at some point in the foreseeable future. Aren't there enough issues to deal with in the United Kingdom? There are a lot of issues. Right. There are a lot of issues to, to deal with, starting with the cost of living crisis, which is happening right. in the UK and around the, uh, uh, the world with uh, Ukraine, with so many other things. And yet those things which should have been the top item on the news every day over the last few months has been knocked off by constant trickle of stories about number 10 Downing Street and the person whose name is over, over the door. And that has been a distraction from the government being able to get on with the job of uh, governing, which we all desperately need to see happen. And that's why we need a quick leadership contest, a new person installed in Downing Street, and the government can get back to being completely focused on the subject of governing and doing the stuff that all of our constituents want to see us doing. Yes, running the country. Tim, great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. More first move after this.
Okay, welcome back to First Move with a final look at a volatile session unfolding on Wall Street. Once again, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ turning lower after early session gains. Energy remains lower for a second straight day. Global investors will be closely watching the political drama that continues to unfold in the UK through today's session too. Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains under intense pressure to resign, as you were just hearing, after the loss of key cabinet members. Boris Johnson hoping the latest scandal he survives, like another number 10 resident, he does seem to have nine political lives. But even beloved Larry the Cat appears to be showing his claws the Larry the Cat parody account on Twitter saying, I can no longer in good conscience live with this prime minister. Either he goes or I do. Larry the Cat, the final word on the show today. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next. In the meantime, have a perfect day. See you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.